Thanks for watching today. I pray that the message that you're about to hear will empower you to use your voice, help change the way you think, and refresh your spirit. If you'd like to follow along with Pastor's Notes, you can find them on the on-demand page of walkingbyfaith.tv or on our app. Today, we have a special guest, Bishop E.W. Jackson from Exodus Faith Ministries out of Virginia. We're going to get right into his message, Answer the Call. I, I have a message I want to share with you all out of Isaiah chapter 6. Now, I'm not going to take the time to read verses 1 through 8, but I'm sure you all are familiar with that passage in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and so on. But I want to focus on the eighth verse, which says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, Send me. And I want to talk to you for a few minutes from this subject. Answer the call. Answer the call. Now, I know I'm in the right place because I'm one of these preachers who happens to believe that the Word of God is the inerrant, infallible Word of the living God from the very first verse of Genesis to the very last verse of Revelation that it is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. I did spend some time in one of these cemeteries called Harvard Divinity School, but I did not drink the Kool-Aid. And, and we've learned that about 75% of the churches, according to George Barner, about 75% of the churches in America no longer believe what I just said to you no longer believe that the Bible is the true word of the living God. But I believe that with all my heart. And if you believe that, the verse I'm about to read to you, I want you to see in a new light. It's Acts 17, 26, and it says, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and determine their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Now, if you really believe that, as I really believe it, if you really believe that, then you've got to know that you are not here by accident. You are not here by historical circumstance. You are here because God appointed you to be here. Now, this has some profound implications because what it means is that if you are of any Irish descent and some of your ancestors came during the potato famine in, in Ireland, it was blamed in part, of course, on the British and their attempt to, to inflict themselves upon the Irish and to oppress the Irish, that you're really not here because of the potato famine and you're really not here because of the British. You are here because God ordained that you be here. And if you are of Italian descent, you didn't come over as a result of the pogroms that were being put on the Irish, particularly Southern Irish being oppressed even by, uh, that is, Southern Italians even being oppressed, oppressed by Northern Italians. You are not here trying to escape the oppression. You are here because God appointed you to be here. And yes, here's where it gets a little bit controversial. It means if, like me, you are the descendant of slaves, my Great-grandparents were slaves and sharecroppers in Orange County, Virginia, Gabriel and Eliza Jackson. Uh, if you are like me, a descendant of slaves, your heritage dates back 
to Africa in past centuries, you are not here because of slavery and you are not here because of the Atlantic slave trade. You are here because God appointed you to be here, wanted you to be here, and affected that through the circumstances of those times. In other words, we are Americans because we were called by God to be here. Now look, if God called you to be here, then he's equipped you to be here, and he called you not in the 16th or 17th or 18th or 19th centuries. He called you in the 20th and 21st centuries, and therefore, God equipped you to deal with the challenges that we face today. He made you, he designed you, he equipped you for this time. And you know, our ancestors may have all come on different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. And I'm convinced of this, that we have got to learn to come together and that the body of Christ has got to lead the way. There is a calling on our lives for this country, for this time. But the reason why the world is in such a desperate condition and the reason why America is facing so many problems and crises I am convinced is because the body of Christ has allowed the devil to divide us to keep us from providing the leadership that the country so desperately needs at a time like this. So I want to say to you, if God called you to be here, answer the call. Answer the call. Jesus inaugurated his ministry by saying, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Find us in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 4. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to appoint all them that mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And you know, after that verse, the script is flipped. And it's no longer about what the Father has called him to do, but about what he has called us to do. And he says, and they, they, not he, but they shall repair the old ruins, and they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. In other words, he puts the onus on us under his anointing, under his leadership, under his authority to be the healing balm for the world to be what the world needs to set the captives free, to be what the world needs to rebuild the old ruins. There's a calling on our lives to represent him in the earth. And we've allowed the devil to divide us and convince us that there are other things that are more important. You know, we've got some rebuilding to do as the body of Christ. And we can't do that if we're off in each other's little ethnic and denominational corners fighting one another. We've got to come together. 
I mean, the world will convince you that the biggest problem in America is race. It is not. It is not. In fact, let me just say right off the bat, and I know this will shock some of you. It might even anger some of you. America has never had and does not now have a racial problem. America has a sin problem. You see, my friends, it's not the skin, it's the sin. It's not the skin, it's the sin. Can I, can I just take a moment to say, you know, we, we hear some stuff in the world that is just, if you stop and think about it for a moment, it's just bizarre. Slavery is America's original sin. Well, it wasn't original to America, and it's certainly not anybody's original sin. Original sin was committed in the Garden of Eden. And as a result, we're all born in sin and shaped in iniquity. The fact of the matter is slavery has existed throughout time immemorial. And human beings have found various reasons to subjugate one another. And for most of the history of the world, it was people subjugating people of the same ethnic background and the same demographic characteristics because they weren't traveling enough to meet people who looked differently than the ethnic people that surrounded them. And so Europeans enslave other Europeans. The name plantation was first invented by the British to enslave the Irish. And they looked just alike. You could not tell them apart ethnically. And it was Africans who were enslaving other Africans. And it was Asians who were enslaving other Asians. And then when world travel began by ship and people found others who did not look the same way uh, that their, their uh, neighbors looked and those around them looked, then they began to have other justifications. But, the, but the, the process is always the same. You find people that are weaker than you are, you subjugate them, and then you come up with justifications for why they deserve their condition. And we want to make it racial. It's not racial. It's the human condition that creates this problem. I mean, my goodness, did anybody ever see the movie Spartacus? I mean, the Romans weren't enslaving Africans. Spartacus was a European. And the slaves that they were enslaving were Europeans. And they rose up against their slave masters, other Europeans. See, we get focused on skin color, but that's not really the issue. The issue is the human heart. That's the problem. And the problem of subjugation is not the problem of a particular ethnic group. It is the problem of all mankind. I am convinced of this. If God waved his hand over the whole earth right now, and made every single one of us exactly the same complexion and gave every single one of us exactly the same texture hair. And he left one difference. Some brown eyes, some blue eyes, some green eyes, some hazel eyes. It wouldn't be long. <laughs> Pastor, the brown-eyed folks would be gathering in the corner talking about, did you see the way those blue-eyed people looked at us? You know, they really think they're better than us. We, we need a brown-eyed movement. Because it's what human beings do. Look, my friends, gangs fight over not the color of people's skin, but the colors that they wear. 
Because people will always find a reason. The Hutus and the Tutsis could not be told apart, told apart in terms of their appearance. And yet, and yet, one tribe tries to literally wipe the other tribe out. You know, I love this mythology that, you know, America was such the continent, was such a wonderful place, and the, the Native Americans lived in such harmony, and along came the Europeans and ruined it all. Native Americans were fighting and killing and enslaving each other too, each other too. And if you believe that's not true, then you don't believe the Bible, because the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Native Americans were not only killing each other and enslaving each other before Europeans ever got here, but they were committing acts of cannibalism, believing that if you ate the heart of your enemy or you, you ate some part of their body, that somehow you absorbed their strength. And I'm not saying that to put down Native Americans, and I'm not saying that to exalt Europeans. I'm simply saying the problem of the human condition has no ethnic boundaries. And this notion that somehow Europeans are the problem and they are the racist is a lie out of the pit of hell. We've got some rebuilding to do. The biggest social problem that we have in America, that was just a footnote. The biggest social problem we have in America. Oh, and by the way, just, just to wrap this up, here again, you won't be taught this history in public schools because Frankly, the colleges and universities have been taken over by leftists who have a particular Marxist viewpoint that they want to propound. But the fact of the matter is, the Barbary pirates who were northern Africans enslaved 1.5 million Europeans before the African slave trade ever started. And the Portuguese learned about the African slave trade from other Africans who told them that that was more lucrative than the gold that they'd gone to Africa to find. And it was, Europe, it, was, it was Northern African Muslims who had decided that the Southern African, Sub-Saharan, dark-skinned Africans made good slaves. They had a, created a name for it called Abid, which means both African and slave. You won't learn that in colleges, but it was the Africans who taught the Europeans that slavery was lucrative and that the dark-skinned Africans made good slaves, not the other way around. Well, since I'm on it, may I also say that the, the, the 1619 Project is a lie because they're trying to say that America was founded on slavery. First of all, they don't even get their history right. The first Africans to arrive on this continent in 1619 were not slaves. They were indentured servants. They came on the same basis as the Europeans who came here as indentured servants, paid their way by borrowing money that they then paid back by working for a period of approximately seven years most of the time. Well, there was one of these slaves called Antonio, later came to adopt the name Antonio Johnson, one of these indentured servants, got his freedom after seven years, ended up with a 250-acre estate in eastern Virginia. And a young man by the name of Kasor, John Kasor, served his time with, with Anthony Johnson became Antonio, Antonio became Anthony, with Anthony Johnson served his time and asked to be released. And Anthony Johnson said, no, you have not served your time yet. You owe me more time. And they ended up in a dispute about this, and they actually went to court over it. John K. Soar and Anthony Johnson 
battling in court over whether the indentured servitude of John Kasor, another African, had been fulfilled. The court determined that John Kasor had tried to cheat Anthony Johnson out of time that he was owed, and it was the first case in Virginia, the first case in America, in which an indentured servant was made a lifetime slave. The first such case. And the lifetime slavery of John Kasor was committed to slave owner, black African Antonio Johnson. Won't read that much, because that doesn't fit the narrative. There were 12,000 black slave owners in the antebellum South before the Civil War. You won't read that either. But here again, I say all this simply to say, we get hung up on the skin color when the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places. We're supposed to put on the whole armor of God. We're not supposed to be looking at these things the way the world looks at them. We're supposed to be looking at them through a biblical lens, not the Marxist lens that people are trying to convince us we ought to buy into. I reject all of that. I want to see things. In fact, you know, we, every single one of us knows 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Uh, uh, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. But very few know 2 Corinthians 5, 16. Henceforth know we no man according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, henceforth know we him thus no more. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's the context of that verse. It's telling us, stop focusing on the flesh and start looking at the Spirit. Wow. We've got to rebuild the family. Because the biggest social problem in America right now is the breakdown of the family. All of these problems that we see happening in the streets, all of these problems that we're, we, we are told uh, are created by racist police out to, to hunt down black men. Uh, by the way, I, my, my organization, Stan, Staying True to America's National Destiny, is doing research right now on the number of young black children killed in the inner cities across the country just in the last year and a half, 75 black baby shot in crossfire of gangs and thugs who are shooting off their guns. We're right now about to have a, a, um, a town meeting in Richmond over the death of a young mother and her three-month-old child innocently sitting out on the stoop of their house, gunned down, both killed because a group of thugs decided they were going to shoot it out with each other and didn't care who died. The problem that we're having in our country right now with these young men, who, some of whom are having these bad encounters with police, is because they don't have a daddy in the home to try to teach them right from wrong and show them how to respect authority. Now listen, I was born into a broken home, raised in poverty and foster care. My mother and father were not raising me, and by the time I was 10 years old, I was a member of a young gang we were already having gang fights. We were gang banging. 
We just didn't have any guns to shoot each other with, and we weren't stabbing each other at that point. But, I mean, we were having some vicious fights over gang territory. Say, well, how in the world did you go from that to where you are now? At the age of 10 years old, something rather miraculous happened. My daddy came back into my life. At the age of 10 years old, I was standing on a street corner with my gang, and my father drove up, who I didn't know. I didn't see much of my mother, but I did see my father. He would visit from time to time. Drove up, summoned me to his car, and said, son, you said you want to come live with me. You still want to live with me? I said, yeah, dad, I do. Get in. He took me to my foster home and told my foster mother, Miss Beck, a woman loved me like I was her own because I'd been with her since I was 14 months old, and said, Miss Beck, her name was Rebecca. He called her Miss Beck. He said, Miss Beck, I got to take my son to live with me. She became hysterical, you know, because I was her baby. He said, because if I don't take my son, we're going to lose him. He saw which direction I was going in. My father took me to live with him and literally over, I mean, that day, I don't mean two weeks later, a month later, that day, she said, let me, let me plan, let me get his clothes together. He said, I'll send for whatever he needs. That day, my father took me home to live with him. He said, now, son, every day with me could be like a day of heaven on earth. He said, or oh, every day I will tear your behind all to pieces. <laughs> I went from being an F student in fifth grade to an A student in sixth grade. That's the truth. People ask me, how in the world did you end up in Harvard Law School? The grace of God, of course, and a father who taught me something that we've got to have fathers teaching their young sons. Son, I expect something of you, and you're going to deliver, and I don't want to hear any excuses. Don't tell me about why you can't, who won't let you, and all that. He said, when you meet obstacles, you will go over them, under them, around them, or through them. But you don't let anybody stop you from making something of yourself. And don't come to back, back to me with excuses because I will not accept them. You ex You got a bunch of young boys running around the streets who have nobody to tell them that. I can give you personal examples of, of people that I've known, not, not to mention I've read about, they think that being a man is fathering as many children as you can and don't have to take care of any of them. And those children then become the monsters who terrorize our streets and kill young women and their babies sitting innocently on their stoop. And, and race has nothing to do with it. It has to do with the breakdown of the family that was engineered beginning in the 60s when women started being rewarded more for not having a man in the home than they are for having a man in the home. The whole welfare system was designed to destroy the black family. I just said my great-grandmother and great-grandfather were slaves and sharecroppers in Orange County, Virginia. The 1880 census has them as an intact family Mother, father, husband, wife, and their children, my grandfather, in 1880. What happened? It wasn't slavery. Don't buy that lie. In 1950, only 13% of black children were born out of wedlock in 1950. Only 13%. And now 75% are born out of wedlock. It wasn't slavery that did that. It was the engineering of our government that did that, trying to solve a problem that it couldn't solve. We've got to rebuild the family. 
See, it doesn't take midnight basketball. It doesn't take another government program. It doesn't take some highfalutin, high-sounding idea that the government and policymakers comes up with. It takes a mother and a father and an intact family to raise their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and teach them in the way that they ought to go. That's what happened for me. My mother wasn't there, but my father was enough in that case. And it will make the difference. But how in the world are you going to do that when you got people running around the country telling us there is no such thing as a man or a woman? You got the Speaker of the House said, we're not going to use the words mother and father anymore. Those are passe. And you got people saying, we've got to teach children. Nobody knows whether you're a boy or a girl. Don't let anybody impose that on you. That's oppressive. You got to wait and you'll decide that later. I have three children, one boy said, when my son was born, I held him up. It's a boy. I don't need any government edict to tell me that. I don't need anybody to instruct me in that. I already know that. And he's known that all of his life. So how in the world are we going to do it when people are saying, oh, no, 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 you don't need a mother and a father. Two men is just as good in a same-sex marriage. Two women are just as good. That's not true. It's simply not true. If that's true, then God lied. Because Jesus said in the beginning he made them male and female, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. God told them be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. You can't be fruitful and multiply as two men or two women. It's not possible. I don't care if they issue a thousand Supreme Court decisions or a thousand pieces of legislation. Marriage is a union between one man and one woman in the bonds of holy matrimony before God. That's it. That's all. There is nothing else. And I don't care if they come up with 533 different genders as they're trying to do. There are only two genders, male and female, man and woman. That's it. That's all. And then we've got to raise up the truth. Because all, all that, that stuff I just told you, that, that's about destroying any notion of absolute truth. There is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the word of God. Every word that proceeds out of his mouth is truth. Every word of the Bible is truth. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. This idea of moral and cultural relativism is, is poison to our culture. And somehow, well, don't critique any, any other culture, any other ideas. Let me tell you something. You know what that's led to? That's led to this notion that no matter what system people live under, if that's their choice, that's their culture, don't you dare say there's anything wrong with that. Who, you think, who do you think you are? Let me tell you something. Freedom is better than tyranny. A constitutional republic is better than a communist dictatorship. 
Now that's the truth. All this, 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 this idea, don't say anything about China. That's racist. China is run by a brutal, bloodthirsty, communist dictatorship, and those communists are wrong. They are godless. They are monsters. They are enslaving their own people, and I don't care what you say about me. Call me whatever you want. I'm going to tell the truth about that because people need to know the truth. Jesus said you know the truth. The truth will make you free. And with all of our flaws as Americans, and we are flawed, we're a flawed country, we'll never be a perfect country. I tell people there's a very profound reason why we'll never be a perfect country. Here it is. You may not have heard this secret before, but they, they, America will never be a perfect country because there are people here. <laughs> but, but in spite of our flaws, is there any place better to live? Is there anywhere else? Listen, I, I, get, I make people mad about this sometimes, but I tell them, in keeping with what I said opening up, okay, I know that my ancestors came here as slaves, but you know what? At this point, now going on 200 years later, I'm past caring about how they got here. I'm just glad they got here. <laughs> because as a result of their coming and the sacrifice they made, I'm here. I listen, this little poor foster kid won the nomination for lieutenant governor of Virginia that was once a Confederate state. Don't tell me about my country. My country is a country that is worth fighting for and worth standing up for. And let me tell you something else. For every negative thing you can come up with, I can come up with something positive. People say America's a racist country, America's a white supremacist country. Well, then explain to me all the people throughout our history who were Americans of European ancestry who died standing up for the rights of black folks to be treated like human beings. How can we be a racist country when there were a third of those lynched were people who were lynched because they were standing up for these former African slaves. How could this be a racist country when throughout our history there have been people who've always said Christians, Quakers at the very beginning, abolitionists, Christians who stood up and said, you can't treat people as less than human. It is wrong in the sight of God. That is just as much a part of my heritage as is slavery. And I will stand up for this nation as the greatest nation in the history of mankind as long as I have breath in my body. Now that, that our, our founding fathers didn't say we hold these opinions. They said we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And people will say, yeah, but Bishop Jackson, they didn't live up to that. And to which I answer, so you've lived up to everything you say you believe. Because if you have, you ought to come get on the altar so we can worship you. No human being has lived up to everything we say we believe. But I know one thing. I believe God was in the middle of that, that God was inspiring those words, that God was laying a legacy for every single one of us to inherit. And now, 
Those people that were once slaves, I don't care what anybody says, can get up every morning and chart the course of their own lives before God without anybody telling them what they can and cannot do. And anybody who tells them otherwise is a liar. You can get up and you can breathe free air and you can make your way. My wife and I worked two and three jobs working our way through college. I got into law school. My wife worked while I studied. We just kept pressing ahead, moving ahead, and there was never a moment at which anybody stood in my way and said, oh, no, you can't go any further. You're black. Never. And I'm not saying that hasn't happened, but I'm saying that's not happening now. And I don't want to hear concepts of systemic racism. In other words, that's magical thinking. In other words, it's there. You can't identify it. You can't measure it. You can't prove it. But it's there. You know what that's the formula for? Debilitation. Convincing people before they even start that they're already defeated. I would never teach my children that junk. And no thinking person would. I teach them what my father taught me. Nobody can stop you. My father used to say, son, reach for the stars. And even if you don't get to the stars, maybe you'll land on the moon. My father had a sixth grade education. And my father said, son, I don't want you to work with your back the way I do. I want you to work with your brain. Get out there and get an education and make something of yourself and make me proud. My father, the sixth grade welder, sixth grade education, a welder from Sunship Building and Dry Dock Company, watched his son get a degree from the top law school in the nation. That's America. Now look, look, my father rescued me out of the circumstance I was in that was leading me to one of three places, jail, drug addiction, or death at an early age. Some of my friends died. One of my friends who was a member of my gang ended up killing another guy and got life in prison. Those are the people I hung out with. Our, our heroes were the thugs who strutted up and down the street. We weren't looking at doctors and lawyers and, 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 and corporate leaders and, and politicians. We were looking at the thugs. They were buff. They were tough. They were the people that we saw as our heroes. My father got me out of all that. But then in, 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 in uh, 1975, while I was in the middle of Harvard Law School, my father had gotten saved a couple years early. I still was not. He raised me up to respect God, but he wasn't serving God, but he had gotten saved. And my father told me after I spent a summer with him working at a law firm in Philadelphia, son, you know what I'm doing? I said, what? He said, I'm, he said, I'm, I'm reading the Bible from cover to cover. He said, and I'll tell you what, he said, I'm enjoying it. And I'm thinking to myself, unsaved, oh, wow, that's interesting. Okay, great. Keep at it. And then on my way home, I'll never forget it, folks, I had this thought. You know, the Bible is, after all, one of the great books. And at the time, I was on a quest to read the great books. And I thought, you know, I should read the Bible, too, because, you know, at cocktail parties, it might come up between sips of white wine, and I want to comment on it intelligently. That's what I was thinking. But the Holy Spirit had something different in mind. I started reading the Bible in September of 1976. And ladies, you'll understand this, I hope, and not, not hold this against me. But my attitude had been, you know, church is good for women and children, but we men have more important things to do, like watch football and drink beer. 
My wife would go to church and she'd come home from church and walk through our little apartment door. I'd see her walking in and I'd be sitting in the living room with my feet propped up and I might have a beer in my hand. I'd look at her and say, how much of my money you give that preacher today? And my wife would look at me and just shake her head and say, poor thing, demon possessed right up to the eyeballs. But I started reading the Bible, and I came across this man, David, a man's man, a fighter, run through a troop and leap over a wall, slayed Goliath, and yet talked about God so tenderly and so lovingly. Oh, God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I've looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I think of you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Because you have been my help, therefore under the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. And I began to say, God, what was it? that made this man talk about you like that. I did not know God, but I started to pray the simple prayer. God, if you're real, show me. My wife had no idea what I was doing. I still wouldn't go to church. I wasn't under the tutelage of any preacher. I challenged God, show me if you're that real. And on December 22nd, 1976, as an old song says, I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on Jesus. I woke up and God had invaded that room and I knew forever that God was real. I could not see him with my physical eyes, but I knew that I was changed forever. I walked in and tapped my wife on the shoulder. She was in my son's room sweeping the floor and I tapped my wife on the shoulder. I said, know what? I said, you know what? My wife looked at me so sweetly, said, what? I said, I think I'm saved. <laughs> and folks, my wife dropped the broom and took, said, what? I said, I don't know how to explain it. I said, but, but where do you go to church? I said, God is doing something in my life. I want to go to church with you on Sunday. My wife took three more steps back and looked me up and down and said, you're not going with me. <laughs> she called my mother-in-law and said, poor thing, Harvard Law School's gotten to be too much for me. He had a nervous breakdown. He got up this morning talking about Jesus. But I hadn't lost my mind. I'd found my mind. I went to church by myself that Sunday morning, and when the preacher gave the altar call, I ran to the altar and just wept as a load of sin was lifted off of me. And I'm going to give you real quick. God taught me two things very early on in my life, and they infused my preaching today. Number one, he taught me that America was a gift to me. He put me in my context and showed me all this hatred people express for the country and all of that. He said, you as my child know that I put you here. Now, he wasn't just talking to me about me. He was talking to me about all Christians. He said, I've, made, I've, I've given you America as a gift, and I've made you a steward over this country. And I began to think, I, I was already committed to duty because I'd served in the United States Marine Corps, but I began to develop a real love for this nation because I understood then God put me here. I'm not here because of racism. I'm not here because of slavery. I'm here because God put me here. And God brought to my mind the story of Joseph. When Joseph met his brothers, he didn't say to them, you bunch of racists, you. You all sent me down here to Egypt. 
They haven't treated me right. Potiphar accused me of messing with his wife. I'm a victim. I hate you all. You all have done me wrong. I mean, maybe you read that. I didn't read that. He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And the second thing that God taught me is this. I don't look at any human being based on the color of their skin. There's no, there's no white heaven, black heaven, brown heaven, yellow heaven. We're all going to the same place. We're all going to worship in the same way. And by the way, I said to people, if you think your race is that important, what are you going to do when you stand before God as a disembodied spirit when you leave this body here and you don't have that skin anymore? You think God's going to look, oh, black folks to this side. And God taught me all that stuff was that's the world's thinking. That's not my thinking. God said to Samuel, don't look at the outward appearance, but look at the heart. That's what God, listen, Dr. King said it, and, and pre, pre, people have pretty much rejected it. We, we do not want to be judged by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. And we're being told now, no, 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 skin colors everything. So my friends, that's why I fight for this country. That's why I stand up for America, because I really believe that God has a purpose for America. That's why the name of our organization is Staying True to America's National Destiny. I believe that America was ordained by Almighty God to serve a purpose in the world. Part of the purpose is to bring people from every part of the globe together to look more like the kingdom of God than any other nation on the face of the earth. And it's up to us as Christians to stand up for what God has given us. So don't get tired, don't get weary. Have you not known, have you not heard that the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth does not faint, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the faint and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall utterly fall. But listen, I'm in my 60s and I still got a pep in my step. Hallelujah. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Don't back down. Don't give in. Don't give up. You stand up for Jesus. We've read the back of the book, the middle of the book, the beginning of the book, and the victory is ours. Hey, it's always a privilege to get to share God's Word with you. But I want to ask you today, are you right with God. Do you know in your heart that you're forgiven, that you're on your way to heaven? For some of you, you've drifted away from the Lord. Others of you, you don't know where you stand with God. If that's you, I want to ask you to pray this prayer with me and give your life to the Lord and receive the forgiveness that he has for you. I want you to make these words your own, just, but speak this out loud from your heart. Just say, oh God, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe that his blood paid for my sins. And I believe that he rose again. And today I give him all of my heart and all of my life. I'm going to live for him every day. I thank you that you've heard my prayer, that I'm forgiven, that my past is gone, that I'm a part of your kingdom today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. 
It is a simple prayer, but if you prayed that prayer, God heard that prayer, and you're forgiven and right with God. Now, we want you to keep growing spiritually. So I wrote a book to help you do that. It's got 10 points, bullet points, to help you keep growing spiritually with Scripture and the things that we need to do. Now, I want to send it to you absolutely free of charge. You can download it. All the information is right there on your screen, or you can contact us, and we'll send you a hard copy. I know that the book is going to bless you and help you keep growing spiritually. I want to thank you for being with us today. We pray for you every day. We love you, and God bless you. If you just prayed that prayer with Pastor Dwayne, you are making one of the best decisions of your life, and we're so excited for you. Just as Pastor said, we'd love to send you a free copy of his book, Your New Life. Log on to walkingbyfaith.tv and have it mailed to you. Download it right there instantly, or you can find it on our app. It's absolutely free and a great resource for you to have. Walking by Faith is reaching the world with the truth of God's word on and off the air. Right now, we have an awesome opportunity to double your impact. Due to the generosity of some of our partners, we have a matching gift of $300,000. We want to make it easy for you to become a partner with us. Now, you can text RESGIVE to 94000 and select Walking by Faith in the drop-down menu. You can also give on our website or on our app. Find us on Roku, Amazon Fire TV, and your favorite social platform by searching WBF TV. Also, check out our app in your favorite app store. You can download past sermons, follow along with notes, speak confessions over your life, and so much more. Get out there and answer the call. We'll see you again next week.